first of our special assignment reports on the boat people. Plight of the refugees is tragic in a number of ways. These people are the lucky ones. They've reached the relative comfort of this Malaysian camp. But for the most important thing about my story is that I feel like most of it is secondhand. Sometimes I'm like playing a game of telephone because I wasn't there to witness the events leading up to us resettling here. Months ago, Malaysia became fed up with refugees. Navy gunboats have towed thousands of refugees like these out to sea to uncertain fate. So everything that I know is just stories that I've heard. Now they say it was worth all the agony and the waiting, especially since America is the final destination. My grandpa is kind of the center of it all. Welcome to Beyond Sound Bites. I'm Jacob Mao. This podcast is built around the idea that God created every single person who becomes a refugee, migrant, or asylum seeker and loves him or her with a depth we cannot comprehend. Listening to stories can remind us of this truth. For those invested in supporting displaced people, it can fuel our advocacy and service. For people neutral on refugee resettlement and related issues, hearing personal stories from the ones most affected is always a good place to start. If you're new to the podcast, you can jump in here, but starting in episode one, we'll give a bit more context. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the Refugee Act of 1980, passed unanimously by Congress in 1979 and signed into law the following year by President Carter. The act systematized our country's approach for admitting refugees and established the administrative structure for resettlement through which more than three million people have brought their dreams, sorrows, hopes, and skills to the U.S. over the last four decades. That's an average of around 78,000 people per year since 1980. Those numbers have declined significantly under the Trump administration, 54,000 in 2017, 22,500 in 2018, 30,000 in 2019. This year, the refugee cap was set at 18,000. With the program shut down for several months during the pandemic, about 10,000 people have entered the country as refugees this year as of September 2020. Chong Tran and her family were resettled under the auspices of the Refugee Act of 1980 by an organization called World Relief. Hailing from Vietnam, the family landed in the Chicago suburb of Wheaton when Chong, now 26, was just shy of a year old. In the next two episodes, she talks about the forces, international and interpersonal, that have shaped her sense of identity and home. In this episode, we start with memories of her grandpa, then zoom out to consider the social-political context of her family's journey, then hear from a World Relief policy expert about how that journey compares to the state of refugee resettlement today. Let's get started. A few years ago, we were in Wheaton, where we were resettled originally, and I think it was the Memorial Day Parade, but there was a World Relief float. And my aunt pointed it out and she started like clapping. And I was like, why are you clapping? And she's like, they're the reason we're here. So that was when I, I don't know, I became more aware of like, or wanted to learn more about our situation and the 
history leading up to us coming here. Because before that, I just like I just thought we were immigrants, and I didn't know the definition of a refugee versus immigrant. You would think at like twenty something, I would know. I didn't know. <laughs> When Chong began to explore more of her family's story, she realized how much of it hinged on the decisions and life events of her grandpa, Ken Tran, who passed away in 2006. Hanging on the kitchen wall at her aunt's house, there's a giant poster board that outlines Ken's life in lines of Vietnamese script. Looking over it and talking with some of her relatives, Trong reviewed the basic shape of her grandpa's story. Ken was born in 1926. He lived under French colonial occupation Japanese occupation during World War II, and French occupation again during the 1940s and 50s. Then came the Second Indochina War, which you and I know better as the Vietnam War, and the communist rule that followed when South Vietnam fell in 1975. Can worked for the South Vietnamese government early on in life, and served as a teacher for 11 years in his home province. During the Vietnam War, he worked for the government again as a supervisor of information in the city of Pleiku. Ken's connection to the South Vietnamese government would have generational effects. After the Communist North took over, they rounded up civil servants, military officers, former elected officials, professors, basically any potential opponents to the new regime, and sent them to re-education camps, where they were subject to hard labor and forced indoctrination. Ken survived in one of those prisons for seven years. Trong was born well after her grandpa's imprisonment, but as a little girl, she saw the shadow of the prison camp still hanging over his body. I remember when I was younger, um, his skin was really bad. Like he had bumps on his skin permanently. Like if he kind of felt like a frog or something. It was just not smooth. And I, one time I asked him why his skin was like that. And he said, because when he was in the camp, they would like soak him in some chem or like a chemical bath or something. And it would just dried out his skin. As her aunt Toa remembers it, one day in 1982, Ken simply showed up unannounced at home. He was free from prison, but now lived in a state of constant fear and paranoia. He remained a marked man. The already limited opportunities for education and gainful employment in a country recovering from decades of war were even more limited for former anti-communists and their families. After about a decade, Ken learned about a possibility to migrate. After he got out, my mom said they saw like a newspaper clipping of the U.S. taking refugees from Vietnam. And so I think they somehow applied and got refugee status. And so he decided to take his three youngest children. So my mom's one of 12. So it was her, my aunt, and my uncle who ended up going with my grandparents. And this was like in 92 or 93. Since my mom was pregnant with me, they had to delay like our coming here. And then I don't know how we were sponsored by World Relief or how we were connected at all. But then we ended up in Wheaton, Illinois. When Trong and her family arrived in 1994, she was 11 months old, and her grandpa was 68. 
as his kids and granddaughter laid a foundation for their lives in a new country, Ken lived out the rest of his years as a patriotic new American and a thankful grandfather. My grandparents had American flags like around their apartment that they would collect from 4th of July <laughs> parades <laughs> every year. He was always like a big proponent of education. And honestly, he was one of like my earlier influences. He taught me French, helped me with math homework. So if anything, I owe my smarts to him. My nickname at home is Mignon. My grandpa gave me that nickname and I think he meant to, that was like a French word for him. So Mignon means cute in French. When Trong was 13, she was helping her mom at the nail salon one day when they got a call from her aunt. Her grandpa had collapsed at home, the small apartment next door to where Trong, her mom, and her sister lived. He died before the ambulance got him to the hospital. He was 80 years old. His large family spread across different hemispheres, grieved long and hard. And Trong would spend years in her early adulthood trying to piece together a fuller picture of the man she knew as her grandpa, trying to understand just how their stories intertwined. I wish I was mature enough to ask him questions, you know, because his, his life was so interesting and he's the reason that I'm here because he suffered. Hi guys, this is Heather. I work with World Relief in Sacramento, California, and I wanted to let you know about The Path. The Path is a brand new community of World Relief monthly donors who have chosen to embark upon the journey to lasting change. These people care deeply about fighting back against suffering and systemic injustice. Whether it's building a home for a widow in Rwanda, providing legal services to a refugee family in the US, Pathmakers commit to walking toward those who feel like the rest of the world is walking away. You can sign up at www.worldrelief.org slash the path. The major events of Can Tran's life lay out like stepping stones, showing Trong how she got to where she is today. But they're also signposts to Vietnam's complex history, a colonized people who became a diaspora people during their quest for independence in the landscape of a larger Cold War. Let's widen the lens on Trong's story now. Let's consider the global events, ideologies, and policy mechanisms that created the environment her family navigated during their journey. In the mid-1800s, French colonizers landed in the coastal region of Vietnam called Da Nang. They started a 50-year campaign to subdue native populations and extract resources from present-day Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Their rule persisted through the Second World War, when it was interrupted briefly by Japanese control. When Japan surrendered to Allied forces in 1945, the resistance leader and communist, Ho Chi Minh, declared an independent Vietnam even quoting the Declaration of Independence in his speech. The U.S. had supported Ho Chi Minh in his resistance efforts against the Japanese, but in the post-war world, the threat of communism overrode American sympathy for emerging former colonies. Here's President Truman in 1950. All the things we believe in are in great danger. This danger has been created by the rulers of the Soviet Union. The future of civilization depends on what we do, on what we do now, 
and in the months ahead. One of the things the U.S. decided to do at that time was support continued French occupation of Vietnam. Buffered with U.S. cash and resources, French soldiers fought a long, bloody guerrilla war that eventually lost public support and ended in defeat nine years later. Sound familiar? With French departure in 1954, Vietnam was split in two, just as Korea had been the year before, with a communist north and a western-backed south. Trong's grandpa was 28 years old at the time, working as a teacher in coastal Binden province, where he was born. For the next decade, the U.S. tried to pursue its policy of containment quietly in Vietnam. From CIA operations to humanitarian and infrastructure projects designed to win the hearts of the people away from communism, from tens of thousands of military advisors to relentless bombing campaigns begun in secrecy. Eventually, in 1965, in the very same coastal region where French colonizers showed up 100 years earlier, U.S. troops set foot on Vietnamese ground. Eventually, the U.S. would send in more than 500,000 troops, 58,000 of whom would never return home. The human toll among the Vietnamese people was exponentially higher. An estimated 2 million civilians died across all of Vietnam, a million North Vietnamese soldiers were killed, as were 250,000 soldiers from the south. Tens of thousands more died in neighboring Laos and Cambodia. At the height of the war in the late 1960s, half of the country's 20 million people were internally displaced. A ceasefire, internationally supervised, will begin at 7 p.m. this Saturday, January 27, Washington time. Within 60 days from this Saturday, all Americans held prisoners of war throughout Indochina will be released. It wasn't until the spring of 1973 that President Nixon, the fourth U.S. president to oversee the war, announced the withdrawal of the last American troops. American forces will be withdrawn from South Vietnam. The people of South Vietnam have been guaranteed the right to determine their own future without outside interference. Two years later, the South crumbled, beginning with North Vietnamese offensives in provinces along the border and the Central Highlands. Among them was Pleiku, the town where Trong's mom and aunt were born and where the family was currently living. The North Vietnamese began their offensive on March the 4th. Within two weeks, President Thieu had decided to abandon much of his country, the northernmost provinces and the Central Highlands. The withdrawal quickly became a rout, civilians and soldiers fleeing in panic seeking whatever safety they could find, many of the refugees sought safety in Da Nang, only to discover they were trapped there. Can was now 50 years old and the patriarch of a large family. They were among the civilians who fled on foot to the coast. Trong's mom and aunt were young children at the time. Her aunt remembers walking for 15 days with bombs sometimes falling around them and being instructed to rub gunpowder on her skin to combat exposure to chemical defoilants. 130,000 Vietnamese people were resettled to the United States that year, 1975. Many of them were evacuated from their home country by the U.S. military. According to Trung's aunt, the family had an opportunity to leave Vietnam on a plane at that time, but Can refused because there wasn't room to bring all of his kids together. If he had taken that opportunity, Trung would have never been born. The refugees who did come to the U.S. that year were dispersed to four military bases around the United States. This was before a permanent resettlement program was established, so local churches and organizations mobilized to help them find homes, learn English, and get jobs. World Relief, 
the organization that would receive Cannes in Wheaton, Illinois, almost 20 years later, was just beginning to formalize its refugee service structure in the U.S. A second wave of refugees started to rise after the North took control and implemented communist rule throughout Vietnam. The regime enforced dramatic land reforms and put people like Trong's grandpa into, quote, re-education camps. It's estimated that as many as 400,000 people were forced into such camps. Another former refugee from South Vietnam, about the same age as Trong's mother, recounts his father's arrest and imprisonment during that time like this. I cried the cry of an innocent boy when someone he loves is out of sight. I did not know that the communists had stolen my father and that I would have to grow up without him. I was too young to understand how many families in our country were broken apart by the communist government, how thousands of children would grow up fatherless, and how thousands of women would have to, for the first time, find ways to support themselves and their children, as well as their loved ones in the re-education camps. For seven years, Trung's grandma and her uncles, who were old enough to work, kept the family together and alive while Can was in the prison. Every few months, her grandma and some of the children would travel and bring food to him. Trong's mom and aunt were three and five years old, respectively, when he went in, and 10 and 12 years old when he finally got out. During visitations, they had to sit a distance from him. They remember how if they misbehaved, the guards would later punish their father by placing him in solitary confinement. In the face of an impoverished, mostly destroyed country, and such harsh policies at the hands of a new regime, not to mention another border war with China that flared up in the late 70s, it's no wonder that people fled the country by the thousands. Here's a news report from 1979. The exodus grew to flood proportions early this year, and in six months, Southeast Asian nations have been inundated. Malaysia, 77,000. Hong Kong, 66,000. Indonesia, at least 55,000. At the current rate of nearly 60,000 a month within a year, the world will have to cope with a new homeless population the size of San Francisco. Between 1975 and 1995, almost 800,000 people fled Vietnam by boat. Thousands more fled Laos and Cambodia. The plight of the refugees is tragic in a number of ways. These people are the lucky ones. They've reached the relative comfort of this Malaysian camp. But for everyone who's made it here, an equal number have not. It's believed more than 200,000 Vietnamese have drowned at sea trying to reach foreign soil. The similarity of these 40-year-old news reports to the media coverage of more recent refugee outflows in the Mediterranean region is eerie and tragic. Then, as now, neighboring countries varied in their response to refugees. Some made bold moves, trying to strong-arm the international community into action. Eight months ago, Malaysia became fed up with refugees. Navy gunboats have towed thousands of refugees like these out to sea to uncertain fate. In this case, a French hospital ship intervened, but Malaysia had made its point. Unless richer Western nations took the burden off its hands, there'd be tough, drastic action. In the late 70s, the international community did respond to the Indochina refugee crisis with something called the Orderly Departure Program. This collaboration laid the groundwork for the pathway that Can and some of his family would eventually travel to reach the U.S. It was a system aimed at reducing the need for families to flee by sea by creating safer pathways to refuge. It required the partnership of the Vietnamese government, countries of first asylum in Central Asia, and receiving countries in the West who would increase their capacity to receive refugees for permanent resettlement. 
attempting to put pressure on other Western countries to follow its example, and also motivated to use refugee policy as a way to undermine communism by warmly welcoming those fleeing its rule, the United States government kicked into gear. Under President Carter, Congress passed the 1980 Refugee Act. It was the first legislation to specifically address refugees in a way that was distinct from other immigration policies. Today, it is still the system that determines how refugees are admitted and settled in the U.S. The first year the Refugee Act was in effect, the U.S. resettled 207,000 refugees. In 2020, as we heard earlier, the Trump administration set a maximum of 18,000, the lowest since the program began. In the early 1990s, U.S. resettlement policy extended in a manner that finally allowed it to reach Cannes, who was by then in his mid-60s. From 1991 to 95, a limited number of U.S. resettlement slots were reserved each year for Vietnamese people who had been subject to re-education camps after the war. Over 122,000 people arrived as a part of this program. Six of them were Can Tran, his wife, his two daughters, his son, and his infant granddaughter, Trong. Resettlement was a ticket to a new life, purchased with years of suffering in a communist prison. But it also introduced its own kind of trouble into a family that had already endured so much. We always hear about like the conflict aspect, like the wars and the resettlement aspect, but I think it's the familial relationships and what goes on there that can sometimes be more traumatizing. It has a longer lasting effect, I think. And just how family relationships change permanently. In the next episode, we'll take another pass at Trong's migration journey. This time we'll zoom in and see how her family navigated the challenges and opportunities that journey presented. Before we move on though, it's important to know more about how the history of the resettlement program compares to its current state. To help us understand that, here's Jenny Yang. Hi, Jacob. How are you? Good. You can hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear She's you. World Relief's Vice President for Advocacy yes. and Policy Great. and co-author of the book, so Welcoming the Stranger, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration yes, Debate. Of we'll jump right into these questions. First one is that in the story that we're hearing about in this podcast episode, the main person in it, Trong, was really young when she came to the U.S. She was like a year old. So how has the U.S. resettlement program, as well as World Relief's U.S. programs, traditionally supported refugee and immigrant children? Sure. So yeah. as folks may know, uh, children make up about 40% of the world's displaced population, which means that a lot of the people who are experiencing trauma and loss are, are little kids. What I found when I visited some camps overseas and refugee populations, that a lot of the children weren't even attending school because a lot of them were having to work to just provide for their families. And so when you're in a life and death situation, the parents will make the difficult choice of wanting to feed their children, even with their children working, versus their children going to school, which is seems like an abstract goal and something that maybe one wouldn't prioritize if you need to feed your children immediately. So these are the, the tough situations and decisions that a lot of parents have to make. 
uh, when we talk about resettlement is really only reserved for some of the most vulnerable refugees who cannot return home and who cannot locally integrate in the place in which they fled. Uh, one clear example of this is a, a Syrian refugee family that I got to know in Baltimore where it was a father and a mother with four children and two of the kids had a blood disorder where they needed blood transfusions every month, as did the mother. And if this refugee family had stayed in Jordan, they likely would not have had access to medical attention or to blood transfusions. And uh, they likely would have died, actually, from their medical complications. And the mother would cry often when I was with her because she felt so grateful that she was able to get this medical attention that she would not have gotten in Jordan. So it's cases like this where, where these families and individuals really cannot go back home. They cannot locally integrate and they're in urgent need of assistance or protection uh, that are referred to the United States. And, and for us as Americans, we really do have the privilege of being able to partner with a lot of these families and helping understand what their needs are and doing everything we can to make sure that we can come alongside of these families and really help them thrive once here. At this point in the story that we're hearing about Trong, we have just kind of done an overview of what's at the time was called the Indochina refugee crisis in the 70s and kind of how that played a role in leading to the Refugee Act of 1980. From 1980 to 2016, there were about 80,000 refugees resettled each year, if my numbers are right. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the last three years, that's been around 28,000. And then this current year, that cap was set at 18,000. What's the most important thing for people who are listening to understand about why those numbers have changed and what the effects are? Sure. It's really critically important that the U.S. understands its leadership role traditionally in refugee resettlement and how we have oftentimes historically resettled the largest number of refugees in the world. And so this history that was really from the late 1970s, as, as you were discussing to the early 1980s at the height of the Indochina refugee crisis um, was just a response to global events. And today we also have similar events around the world where there's wars that haven't ended. We have persecution and conflict that have forced people to flee from their homes in larger numbers than even then. And you would think that the U.S.'s response would be proportionate to that, but it has not been so I think it's it's an unfortunate turn of events that instead of um, a global humanitarian response that's proportionate to the global refugee crisis, that we are effectively shutting the door to those who are fleeing persecution. And so historically, the, the re average refugee ceiling has been 95,000. And so the fact that we have set it at 18,000 is just abysmal. And it really speaks to the fact that this program has become almost very partisan. It's really important for people to understand that both Democrats and Republicans have supported this program, that the Refugee Act was passed unanimously in Congress. And so making sure that this program in, continues to enjoy bipartisan support is critically important. It's really mm -hmm. a, a shining example of what we can do well in partnership with organizations like World Relief. And so our hope is that for fiscal year 2021, that the ceiling would increase from 18,000 to 95,000 so that the, the ceiling is restored back to historical averages. Um, and so that's what we're hoping for. It's also a number that a broad-based coalition has supported. Um, and um, it's something that we're hoping will 
be supported by the president and by the administration as we look forward to uh, rebuilding the program at some point. In terms of policy and advocacy, how could people who are listening right now support refugees or other immigrant families who are in vulnerable situations, both kind of in this moment, September 2020, or in general? I think it's just important that immigration is a issue that we do vote on, that it's something that we care about and we want elected officials, the ones that we vote for, to support policies that would be favorable to refugees and immigrants. So it is important to vote and to understand your preferred political candidates' positions on those topics. That's as easy as a Google search and looking on their campaign website around their positions. Um, The other thing I would say is that we need to continue to raise our voice in contacting our elected officials. So if folks can pick up the phone and call your member of Congress and share with them that you support refugees and immigrants, that would be huge. Um, So raising your voice and advocacy is, is critically important as well. Thank you so much. You're welcome. If there's anything else I can do, just just let me know. All righty. Thanks again for squeezing it in. That was Jenny Yang, World Beliefs Vice President for Advocacy and Policy. Thanks for listening to Beyond Soundbites podcast. In the next episode, Chong takes us a level deeper in her family's story. My mom was pregnant with me, um, but my parents weren't married. And my mom really wanted to stay in Vietnam and be with my dad. But my grandpa didn't see a future for her if she stayed. Beyond Soundbites is created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America, a network of churches, ministries, and individuals supporting refugees and asylum seekers across the U.S. and Canada. Other organizational supporters include the Refugee Language Program, Exodus World Service, Tucson Refugee Ministry, Global Community Partners, Abounding Service, and World Relief. Griffin Jackson provided editorial support on this episode. John and Valerie Guerra created the theme music. The rest of the songs are by Chris Dingman. This episode was mixed by Matt McQueen at Gem City Studios in Jellicoe, Tennessee. Special thanks to Trong Tran for sharing her story over the course of several meetings with me during the summer of 2019.